I'll be reading today from the book of Titus, starting in chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. I'm Pastor Joey. When uh, my wife Jen and I got engaged, we decided it was time for us to start attending the same church. Uh, we were in college at the time. She was driving 20 minutes north to the church she had been going to through college. I was driving 45 minutes southeast to go back to my home church, small town I grew up in, the church I had accepted Christ in. So we decided together we were going to go to my home church. It was a small Baptist church of about 100 people or so on a Sunday, and I was the first person from that church to go on to Bible college or to enter into the ministry um, probably in a decade or two from that church. So it's fair to say that I was held in very high esteem, kind of like a, a grandmother with their, their kid. It's like, oh, you're such a cute little pastor in training. It was, it was nice. Um, so I bring Jenna along with me, and, and they all were convinced I was never going to find a woman who would put up with me, so they loved her. They were ecstatic to meet Jenna. She was instantly in. Now, fun fact, uh, Jenna's grandparents had actually lived for three years in my hometown, and the one pastor that her grandfather had was at that church as the youth pastor 50 years before I was there. Uh, it's where her father was born, and so she had grown up hearing some stories about this church and their experiences there. Well, every, uh, every fifth Sunday, 
the church would hold kind of an all-comers breakfast during the Sunday school hour, and different Sunday school classes would take the responsibility each time it happened to bring the breakfast, plan the breakfast, plan the supplies, and, and bring it all in. And we'd had two, three, maybe four of those before it was time for our young adults class that we were part of to host. And Jenna and I were the first ones to arrive that morning. We had to be there early for something. So Jenna walks into the kitchen with her uh, glass Pyrex dish with the egg casserole in hand where she was immediately stopped by one of the matriarchs of the church. This was a woman who was my best friend's grandmother and Jenna's grandmother's best friend when they were in their 20s. So they knew each other. This is the woman that Jenna was kind of eager to impress. But she took one look at the casserole dish and said, we don't do egg casseroles at this church. (laughs) And this is why I love my wife. She said, "Um, well, there's five more coming. (laughs) It's one of our early relationship stories that we like to tell and laugh about. We told Jenna's grandparents about this like six or seven years after it happened, and her grandmother goes, I'll bet I know who said it. (laughs) She was right. Apparently her friend had not changed in 50 years. It's a funny story, um, but it also illustrates something about that church that that was very true of of the church. You could get in easy. Jenna got in just by knowing me and by coming along with me. But if you're going to get anywhere within that church, there's some rules you need to know, things we do, things we most certainly do not do. There's people you need to make happy, expectations you need to meet. There's a matriarchy that you need to deal with and submit to. Love gets you in. That's the easy part. Work keeps you in to that particular church. At least that's the way it was when I was younger. That's sad because none of us feel like that should be the way that you get into and then belong to a gathering. If you're accepted by love, you should stay in by love, not by meeting some standard that's being placed on you only after you've been brought in. It's like a bait and switch. But Sometimes we think about Christianity in the same way. God's love, God's grace, Jesus' sacrifice, that's what brings us in. Yes, we're happy about that. But if we're going to stay in, many of us feel whether we'll say it out loud or not, that's going to take some work. You know, God has accepted us by sheer grace, of course. We get together, we sing about that, we pray that, we thank God for that every single Sunday. But like being an employee at a company or a student in a class, we can begin to think, it's time for me to really buckle down and get to work. Maybe, maybe the teacher, maybe the boss, maybe God will really like me if I can show him that I'm the best worker, the best student, the best follower he's got. And sometimes we start to think, well... I know God's accepted me. Yeah, I know he's accepted me because I haven't sinned any big sins recently. I went to church five out of the last eight Sundays. I prayed the sinner's prayer four times. Of course I'm accepted. Now, that is, we're laughing at a little bit because we know that's not the basis for our acceptance with God. Our, our, our behavior, our ongoing ability to keep ourselves as, as pure as we need to be to not feel ostracized from this group, that's not 
the basis for which God accepts us. And yet, some of us are laughing with a little bit of a, ouch, that kind of hurts, myself included, because if I'm not careful, I tend to think that it's my performance, my attendance, my accolades that make me acceptable to God. What are we supposed to do when we feel that way? How do we know if we're feeling that way, if we're accidentally or unconsciously trusting in our works for our salvation? How do we refocus ourselves on who God is and why he's accepted us? Well, that's one of the many questions that drives the advice that the Apostle Paul gives to a young church planner named Titus in the passage that we just read from Titus 2, 11 through 3, 11. Titus was a church planter. He was out on this island by himself trying to build a network of house churches. And so Paul writes to him with not, not what we, we come to expect from Paul, which is to say a couple chapters of doctrine and a couple chapters of application. That, his other letters sound like lectures. This one's more like a pep talk. It's like, hey, Titus, here's what you got to do. You're the pastor. You're the preacher for these churches. Get out there and do this, do that. Apply the gospel. Here it is. Apply it this way. Go teach it. He gives these, this cycle of application, command, gospel, application, command, which we're going to see come through in Titus 2 and 3 as we go through it this morning. So turn, turn to Titus 2.11. It's on page 1185 of the Bible under the seat in front of you if you want to follow along. And while you're turning there, let me recap where we've been, where we're going in this discipleship series. We're wrapping up this Sunday the second movement of the discipleship series we're calling Flourish, which is designed to help us understand what we mean when we say God is calling us to be informed and winsome ambassadors. The first movement was focused on informed. I won't go back into that now because there's plenty of uh, resources you can access uh, to reread or re-listen to some of those sermons. But this, this second movement of the series has been focused on how God forms us as ambassadors, Ambassador is both a title, it's a position, but it's also a calling that requires a certain kind of character. So how does God form in us the character required to fulfill our role as ambassadors? Now, I've taken the last four sermons and this one, the five in this part of the series, and tried to summarize them into one sentence, which is unforgivably long because that's hard to do. But here it is anyway. God forms the type of character needed to fulfill our role as his ambassadors through worship that retells and reapplies the gospel to our hearts and through our commitment to the spiritual disciplines of worship, word, and prayer in the context of a community which affirms our practice and spurs our motivation. Now, for you good note takers who are trying frantically to write that down, I'm not going to repeat it. I'm just going to say this Wednesday, Faith News, there will be a link to a summary article on this whole movement of the discipleship series, and I will make sure the sentence is in there. So you, you can rest easy and stretch your hand out a little bit. Now, in that sentence, in that summary, I, I included today's sermon, so I hinted at it a little bit, that, uh, that God forms us through the continual and continuous retelling and reapplication of the gospel to our hearts. We're calling it gospel renewal. You can see it on the screen. And it's what we're exploring from these chapters in Titus. One theologian put it this way, said that gospel renewal is necessary, quote, because the default mode of the human heart is works righteousness. That is, me trying to earn 
what I've already been given. He says, we do not ordinarily live as if the gospel is true. So, for this sermon, the bottom line or the one big idea that summarizes this whole thing is that Christians need the gospel as much as anyone. Christians need the gospel as much as anyone. I will say that probably 30 more times just so that you get it. Christians need the gospel as much as anyone. Let's jump into Titus 2 and see how this comes through. 2.11 through 3.11 clearly illustrate for us the cycle I mentioned earlier of gospel, explaining the gospel, and then a, a command and an application, gospel command, application. It happens over and over again through this section. Let me illustrate what I mean. Uh, chapter 2, verse 11, Paul begins by saying, for the grace of God has appeared. And there's that little word for, which means you kind of got to look back and figure out why that's there. Uh, because in the 10 verses before it, he's giving application. He's saying, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men, act this way. Older women, act this way. Younger men, like this. Younger women, like this. Why? Because for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God, the goodness of God to us in Christ has appeared, and it has brought salvation for all people. But the key is found in verse 12, training us. Now, I'm going to come back to that concept, uh, but at the moment, I want you to slide down a couple of verses and look at verse 15. Given the gospel that Paul outlines in verses 11 through 14, he tells Titus, preach to your churches these things. Declare the gospel. Declare the good news of grace to us in Christ. Declare these things. Exhort, rebuke them with all authority. It's a command. And then chapter 3, verse 1, again, a command. Remind them to live out the implications of the gospel. What gospel? Let me say it again. Verses 4, 5, 6, 7. And then another command in verse 8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Insist on the gospel. Paul is not writing to a church, he's writing to the pastor, the planter of a church, and he's telling this leader over and over and over again, with your believers, preach the gospel. Don't just preach it once, get them into the church, and then start telling them all the things they have to do. Preach the gospel to the church over and over and over again. Declare it, remind them, insist on these things, Paul says. And the cycle in this, this pep talk to Titus, uh, this cycle illustrates, I think, that Paul is acutely aware of the need to continuously ground our obedience, our obedience to God in the truths and in the reality of the gospel. Without a continuous renewing of the gospel message within ourselves, our obedience will always slide into works righteousness. It will always slide into this effort to feel accepted by my behavior instead of knowing I'm accepted through Christ. Our sense of belonging will begin to depend on the sense that we made God happy this week. Christians need the gospel as much as anyone. One pastor puts it this way, if it were natural or even possible for our hearts to operate consistently from the truth and in the life-giving power of the gospel, we wouldn't need it beat into our heads continuously. We wouldn't need gospel renewal. But of course, it isn't possible, and so we do. Now, what does the gospel do for us that makes it 
helpful, uh, that makes it necessary for Christians as much as anyone else to, to reappropriate the gospel on a regular basis. Why do Christians need the gospel as much as anyone? Well, I've hinted at it a little bit already, but it's going to come through in our explanation of this passage. The gospel trains us, confronts us, and motivates us. The gospel trains, confronts, and motivates us. Trains us in virtue, confronts us with the reality of ourselves without Christ, and motivates us to pursue the life that God has for us. And we're going to look at each of these things uh, one at a time, but we'll start with trains, and that's where we're going to spend uh, most of the morning. So the idea of training, as I already said, comes through in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. The grace of God has appeared. It's an epiphany. The grace of God through Christ has appeared to us. It is bringing salvation for all people. It's in in the process of continually bringing salvation to all who look for it and is training us to renounce ungodliness. Other translations say, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. And different translations try to come at this concept from different directions, teaches us, trains us, but it it has this idea of of a coach, that the, the grace of God coaches us in the application of the gospel to our lives. You know, a coach, a good coach is someone who both loves you and confronts you, someone who both challenges you and cares for you. A good coach is someone who will tell you the truth and tell it straight and love you to death at the same time, which is what the gospel does for us, trains us, coaches us towards a specific end, as the ESV says, to renounce ungodliness or to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. There are a lot of reasons why you could say no to sin, say no to ungodliness, or say no to the passions of this world that control us. You could say no because you know if you say yes, it's going to make you look bad. You'll have a hard time showing your face in church on a Sunday if everybody knows what you were doing on Saturday. Or your reasons may be more theological. You may say, well, I'm, I'm afraid that God won't give me health, wealth, and happiness if I say yes to ungodliness and worldly passions. Or maybe even God's going to send me to hell if I do. Or you may say no because you'll hate yourself in the morning and won't respect yourself anymore. You say no because your friends will exclude you if you don't. Or your family might reject you. Or you could lose your job or because you just don't want to be known as that kind of a person. There's all kinds of reasons why we might say no. Back in seminary in my spiritual formation class, the professor gave us an exercise, had us all sit down and think of ourselves in the future, in the ministry, what would happen if we succumb to a moral failure? He called it something like the sin impact index. And we had to sit down and write out and think through who will I hurt and in what ways will I hurt them? I get what he was trying to do, having us think through the consequences of our behavior and how it impacts the, the families, the churches, the relationships we're part, we're part of. But I think the unintended consequence of a, an exercise like that is it made me afraid to sin. 
which isn't necessarily a bad thing. If you're in the midst of temptation and you can't think of any way out, maybe the best thing to do is use any weapon you've got. Think about who you're going to disappoint or what's going to happen if people found out. Whatever it takes to say no and walk away in the moment. But if you're not in the moment and you're doing a reflective exercise like that and you're trying to uh, write out all the consequences so you'll be more afraid of that sinful behavior, you're not transforming your heart. You're jury-rigging it. Because fear is why I sin in the first place. Pride is why I sin in the first place. So anytime someone tries to appeal to my fear of being found out or my pride that I'm not that kind of person, it doesn't change me. You know, we talk about in business, why should you be ethical and treat your employees and your customers well? Because it'll come back to you in greater retention of customers, longevity among your staff. In other words, why be moral? Because you're afraid if you don't, there'll be bad consequences. Why should you not cheat in class, plagiarize a paper, or cheat on a test? Well, you might get caught. Or you're not going to learn what you were instructed to learn, and you're going to skate through and, and just get by and not know it. In other words, you're afraid of how it's going to impact you negatively. But fear and pride are why I sin in the first place. I cheat when I'm afraid I don't have what it takes to get the grade that I need. I sin when I'm afraid that God's not going to give me the good things I think I need. I sin when in my pride I say, God, I know better than you do. I sin when I'm afraid that God's not trustworthy and that it's all up to me. I sin when I don't feel that in the gospel I'm fully accepted, that nothing I do can exhaust God's love for me. And, and, and because I'm not getting it there, I'm going to go find it in other places, and I'm going to put a, a sinful burden on other people to fulfill me in a way that they never can. And if that fails, well, I'll just get on Facebook and manage my image in front of everyone else. Um, put out a good version of myself or in a little closer to home, exert power over others in my work and family relationships I'm going to do whatever it takes to boost my self-esteem and my self-love. If I'm not finding it in God, I will find it in something. I will find it in you. And that sinful drive will crush you and destroy me. It's because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that God's not going to come through. I'm afraid that God's not good enough, that he's not going to meet my needs. And so I'm going to sin and find it somewhere else. Fear and pride are why I sin. So if you're trying to convince me not to sin and you're appealing to fear, it's not going to help me change. That's the wrong kind of training for heart motivation, for the change of a heart. What we need is the kind of training that comes from the gospel. The grace of God has appeared and it trains us trains us to, on the negative, renounce ungodliness, on the positive, to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. Being told that one day God will find me out and he's going to cut me down will keep me moral on the outside. But being told and experiencing through the work of the Spirit that God has already found me and cut down 
his own son on my behalf will transform me on the inside. It's only the good news of this undeserved grace driven into our hearts by the Spirit that's going to work on that inner neediness that drives me. Only the good news of grace in Christ is going to help me see how loved and secure and safe and accepted I am in Jesus. And the more the gospel becomes real to me and becomes real to you, the more it reforms my motivations and leads me to renounce ungodliness, not for my own sake, so I don't get found out, I don't get punished, I don't uh, become known as that type of person who commits those sins, not for my own sake, but for God's sake, and out of gratitude for the grace that he has shown us in Christ, and out of the desire just to know and love and resemble the God who would give so freely. Christians need the gospel as much as anyone else. Christians need the gospel as much as anyone else because we believers need to have the gospel driven on a regular basis deeper into our hearts to train us in the ways that bring delight to God. So what does Paul command a young pastor to do? Verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all the authority you've got, declare these things. Tell the people in your churches over and over and over again to, to contemplate the gospel, to let the gospel sink into their hearts, to ruminate on its implications, to think through what it calls us to be, but to most of all be overwhelmed with gratitude for the grace that God has shown to us through his goodness to us in Christ. Make sure that people understand that the grace of God, not Self-interest teaches and trains and coaches us to renounce sinfulness and live self-controlled lives. Christians need the gospel as much as anyone else. Sometimes we think the gospel is step one of the Christian life. And once you've got it down, I'm saved by grace and now I live, and then we're done with it. And we want to move on from these basic things these supposedly basic things onto other deeper truths and deeper teachings, but there's nothing deeper than the love that God has shown you in Christ. To be trained, to be coached, to be formed internally is to submit ourselves over and over and over again to the message of the gospel, how it confronts us and how it comforts us in Christ. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul has just told Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. And then he comes again with application and says, remind them, be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient, be ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy towards all people. And a little bit of background study on this book reminds us that uh, Titus was living on the island of Crete. And when we call people Cretans, it's not a compliment. And yet to those, kind of, those kinds of people, Paul is saying, hey, Titus, tell your people to submit to a political system, to a social system that has taken every form of debauchery known to man and institutionalized it, is the way things get done. Don't speak evil about it. 
do good work in that community, avoid arguing, be gentle, be courteous even. And we think, but, but why? These are people who deserve evil spoken of them. It's true what's being said. Now, why not say it? Well, the gospel. Verse 3, because, or 4, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In other words, why not condemn those who are like that? Because that's what we are without Christ. A couple of years ago, I was with a group of students at the EFCA's biennial discipleship conference, and a speaker, a guy named Jeff, got up and shared a story. Not our Jeff, but I can see our Jeff doing this. Uh, gets up, and, and he tells a story about a gathering at his house one Sunday morning. He was part of a church that took one Sunday a month off to host a brunch for the community and try to get all the people who aren't at church to come by their house. So he's got a full house. There's believers, unbelievers. Everybody's mingling and talking. Some people from their community group were there. And uh, conversation started to shift towards just the nature of the neighborhood and living in the neighborhood, and especially a guy who lived right across the street. It's a guy who somehow, through connections with the city, had managed to get a no-parking except by permit only sign put up in his front yard. In a city neighborhood where there's no driveways and it's difficult to find street parking, and there's no light on the sign, and there's a tree in front of the sign, so it's difficult to see. A lot of people end up parked in front of his house not knowing any better. And he would come outside every time he saw a car parked there and glue a note to the windshield that said, how dumb are you that you can't read a sign? I've written down your license plate, and next time your car will be towed. People started complaining about the guy across the street. Now, they could complain about him because he wasn't there. It was a Sunday morning. He was pastoring his church, <laughs> which was difficult for the gospel witness in that particular neighborhood. Uh, but Jeff said it, it got bad enough that he said, it, it, that's, that's enough. We need to stop. He's not here. He can't defend himself. It's, we shouldn't talk about him. And he went on. He said, you know, none of us really know him all that well anyway, but we had him over for dinner a couple of times. We found out he's actually a pretty nice guy, and people started looking at him funny. And he says, look, I, I learned more about him, and I'm not justifying what he said. I'm not saying it was right, but I've, I've come to realize in my life that hurt people hurt people, and this guy has been hurt. It doesn't justify it. I don't like it either. He said, I'm praying that one day he will walk over here and ask for forgiveness for what he's done to all of us. But he's not here. We shouldn't talk about him anymore. He said later in the morning, one of the neighbors who didn't know Christ came by and, and said, Jeff, what were you thinking? Like, everyone knows how evil this guy is. He's ex-military. There's probably bodies in the basement. Right? We know how bad this guy is. We've all been treated terribly by him. Why would you defend him? And Jeff responded, look, if, if you knew me well, you know that deep down inside, I am just as hurt and just as hurtful as our neighbor across the street. Everything that was being said about him deserves to be said about me. Except it's not. Because between me and my judge, God, my Father in heaven, there is an advocate standing between me 
and God, saying, this one's mine. And what he's done, I'm not justifying it, but I am forgiving it. Jeff said he went on to say, look, I'm just doing for my neighbor what Jesus is doing for me and what he'll do for you if you accept him. I was blown away by that story because I have, I have heard over and over again, don't gossip, don't slander, don't talk about other people when they're not around. I have never heard, I'd never heard someone say, in Christ, you have an advocate between you and the Father who is defending you when you are indefensible, when you are foolish, disobedient, led astray. And because there is an advocate between you and the only one who can judge you perfectly, how can you, how can you not turn around and be that advocate for someone else? Who are we without Christ? We're Cretans. We're, we're foolish and disobedient and slaved and, and uh, malicious and envious and hateful and hating. Who are we with Christ? The same. But we have an advocate between us and the Father. Man, that's what we were. But, verse 4, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because we were such shining examples of piety, or not because of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his own mercy. We have not been forgiven to the extent that we have managed to clean ourselves up. We have been, given, we have been forgiven to the extent that God's mercy has moved towards us. We need... Christians need the gospel as much as anyone else because we need to be reminded over and over and over again that these, these commands, these moral imperatives, do not gossip, do not steal, things like that. Man, when, when we teach on those, but we pull them out of their gospel context and we just say, here's the command, go thou and do likewise. And we forget the forgiveness and the grace that has already been shown to us. It's just another burden we get placed on ourselves that, yeah, that following it's going to keep us moral on the outside, but not transformed on the inside. And the burden of that command over time is going to wear me down to the point where I'm just going to start measuring my okayness with God by my ability to follow all of these commands I'm told God wants me to follow. Without the gospel motivation... I'm lost in a stew of self-righteousness and works righteousness. We have to have the gospel confront us with who we are without Christ and who we are in Christ in order to motivate us to live the way God has called us. Uh, Jump ahead to verse 8. See, the gospel trains us, the gospel confronts and comforts us, but the gospel also, as I've said, motivates us. Verse 8, here's another command that Paul gives to Titus, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. I want you, insist on these things. Raise your voice if you have to. Say them over and over and over again. Repeat these things, this saying. What saying? The message of the gospel. Preach it over and over and over again so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, this doesn't mean... You know, so they're more nice on a more regular basis. There's, there's a whole lot more in this phrase, good works, uh, that we don't have time to explore now, but we'll explore in the third movement of this discipleship series. So 
Stay tuned for coming attractions. We'll get there. The gospel, absolutely necessary for the Christian. Every Christian, every believer, every one of us in here needs the gospel as much as anyone else because we need the gospel to train us, to motivate us, to confront and comfort us. We need the message of God's goodness to us, his grace to us in Christ to coach us, to become the motivation for how we live. Now, any good coach is going to give you drills, is going to give you things to practice. So I don't want to walk away without thinking through practically how and what we can do with this in the coming week. But I want to put this application in context of the entirety of this part of the sermon series, these five sermons. Uh, So let me just ask a few questions, propose a few ideas for your consideration. First question is this. Are you actively, regularly participating in a worship gathering that retells and reapplies the gospel to your heart. Now, that's the goal when we put together services, when we decide what we're going to preach on, when we choose a book of the Bible to go through, when we choose a topic that we feel our church really needs. Our goal is not not just to, to get you something you can walk away with and do. That's important. But if you don't walk away worshiping Christ for what he has done for you on the cross then we've missed the main point. Make sure you are in a church that regularly tells and retells through singing, through worship, through prayer, through the word, tells and retells the story of the gospel. If you're not in a church like that, find one that does that for you and then commit. Commit to being there as many Sundays as you can manage. No one runs a marathon or learns a difficult skill, learns to play a musical instrument through inconsistent lackadaisical training. And no one is going to be formed to be an ambassador, is going to be, well, we already are ambassadors, but we're not going to be formed to be good ones, ones that can fulfill that calling in that role unless we're regularly being trained in it. And as we've said in this series, one of the main ways God does that is through the gathered worship of the church. So... Commit and be consistent. Show up. Be part of the training that happens every Sunday morning. That was number one. Number two, spiritual disciplines of word, worship, and prayer. Are you practicing them within the context of a community that will challenge you with the gospel on a regular basis? That may be as small as a family or a prayer group or a community group, or a Sunday school class, or the whole gathered body. But are you in a group that regularly confronts you with the gospel? If you're not, or if you're leading a group and you're thinking, I'm not sure if we're doing this very well, I want to encourage you, reach out to Pastor Jeff. uh, Jeff at faithliveitout.org, or just, he's the tall one, so come find him right after the services. And he will help you get connected to a group or figure out how to lead your group in preaching and teaching and confronting one another with the gospel and comforting one another with the gospel. But I want to give you a few questions that you could use over lunch, in your family, in your next community group meeting. And I'm just going to give you a couple, but if you go online, faithliveitout.org slash sermons, and click on the little notes icon, the stack of papers next to the sermon called Gospel Renewal, you'll find like eight or ten questions that you could use. But here's a few just to pique your interest. 
When you get together as a community group and somebody says, hey, how was your week? And you're thinking, I don't know because I don't know how to evaluate it. Use one of these questions instead. Do you have spiritual assurance of your standing in Christ? How clear and vivid is your assurance of your acceptance in Jesus? How does the Holy Spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are God's child? Are you conscious of a growing spiritual light within, revealing more of the purity of the law, the holiness of God, the evil of sin, and the preciousness of the imputed righteousness of Christ? Are you coming to discern false and idolatrous motives for some of the good services that you do, not just the bad things? Are you seeing more clearly the many things that you thought you did for God that you're actually doing for other reasons? Now, I'd keep reading those questions, but I'm already starting to get convicted, so I'll let you look them up later and, and discuss them in your groups. That was number two. Third. And finally, what practices, what habits have you adopted yourself personally to continually put the gospel in front of yourself on a daily basis, or, or at least as often as you can imagine? Not imagine, manage. As often as you can manage. Can you preach the gospel to yourself on a daily basis? One way of doing this is just starting the morning with a simple prayer, something like, God, Nothing good I do today will earn your favor. And nothing bad I do today will lose it. I'm accepted by you in Christ. Help me to live in gratitude for your free grace. Even a short prayer like that can remind us again of the message of the gospel that we, we get together to sing loud on a Sunday and practice quietly the rest of the week. Christians need the gospel as much as anyone. This principle of gospel renewal insists that all Christians, even committed ones, need the Spirit to bring the gospel home to our hearts for deepened experiences of Christ's love and power. Oh, Lord, bring the gospel home to our hearts. Father, you have not just written us a book or sent us a letter or told us a tale, you have lived the story of loving self-sacrifice on our behalf. We admit, as we gather together in a group and individually, or with smaller groups, we admit, we admit that we consistently walk away and turn away from you, and so we ask that you would bring the gospel message to the forefront of our mind's eye, uh, confront us with it, comfort us with it, rebuke us, exhort us with the gospel. That in the story of your free grace for us, we would find the gratitude that allows us to live just for the joy of bringing joy to you. And as we do, Lord, change our hearts and help us to serve you and you alone. These things we pray in the name of the one whose love drove him to sacrifice himself for us and invite us back into the humanity for which we were created, Jesus. Amen.